Our societies today are shaped by short-termism. Social media feeds, the latest political headlines or the latest fashion trends. Like it's all about now. Meanwhile, the planet is warming and inequality rises. Existential catastrophes, human extinction. If short-termism got us into this mess, can long-termism get us out of it? Organizations, institutions and people often focus on the short-term, but not considering the long-term can cause major problems when it comes to global issues like climate change, poverty, deforestation, religious conflicts and migration. For these major issues we must develop long-term strategies. In this series, scientists and stakeholders talk about new views on big issues based on long-termism. Long-termism? Long-termism. Long-termism. What is long-termism? Well, because long-termism is not a word and not a term that you use every day, we ask the same question to different people to view how they look at this term. And this time the question is answered by Tom Bouwman. He's a postdoc at the Institute for Private Law at Leiden University. Tom, great to have you on the show to, um, well, answer an, a simple question, <laughs> which is probably quite difficult to answer. Yeah, that's, uh, I fully agree. Uh, well, my main field of interest is consumer law and uh, the use of behavioral insight within consumer law. And in preparation of this for this podcast, I asked myself whether uh, what what long termism means within the context of consumer law. And after doing some research and thinking, uh, I concluded, well, it doesn't have a specific meaning, at least not explicitly within consumer law. We don't we don't use the term. But however, implicitly, I think long long termism is gaining ground within consumer law. Up until four years ago, consumer scholars were only concerned with protecting consumers against large companies. Um, and from a historical perspective, this makes sense. With the rise of mass production, multinational companies and digitalizations, consumers have become the weaker party. And therefore, it's important to ensure that consumers actually get the goods and services they pay for. And the products are, for example, safe and that consumers are protected like against, like for instance, uh, online dark patterns, etc. But things have changed. Nowadays, you cannot attend a consumer law conference without encountering discussions about sustainability and circularity. So consumer law scholars are now not only concerned with protecting consumers, but also with protecting future generations and our planet. So in that sense, uh, long-termism is gaining ground within consumer law. And I think there are three main questions being asked right now within consumer law. And I think the first question is to what extent consumer law has, so to say, a duty not to indirectly contribute to harm to the environment. And let me give you an example. As a consumer, when we're buying something online, you have a right to return the item within 40 days without giving a, a specific reason. And the idea is that uh, during this time, you can search for more information and so to say, cool down before you make your final decision. Um, but what we see in practice is that people order a lot of clothes online and then uh, they uh, pick one t-shirt, for example, and return the rest. And well, that's of course very bad for the environment. So some legal scholars uh, argue that we uh, should restrict the withdrawal right, for example. And I, I agree to some extent at least. I think there are also other ways to help consumers make up their mind about uh, contractual decisions and to make more environmental friendly uh, uh, decisions. For example, you could think of the consider the opposite strategy. Behavioral sciences show that if we ask someone to think of several reasons why the product he is about to buy might actually not be in line with his preferences, he usually makes a be better decision. So I think this is the first important question we're right now asking within consumer law that relates to uh, long-termism. The second question is how we can empower consumers that want to consume sustainable, sustainable to actually do so. On a European level, there are some uh, legislative proposals that uh, are intended to empower consumers to make more sustainable decisions, basically by prohibiting greenwashing and by obliging companies to disclose information about, for example, how long the project the product can be used and how repairable it is. Although I, I think this is an important step forward, but I'm not sure, not sure whether it's enough. And I think we will talk about this uh, later in the podcast as well. Uh, we know that there's an intention behavior gap. People can struggle with doing the things act they actually want and informing them might, might not be enough. And last but not least, an important difficult question that also relates to the first question is to what extent we should restrict the autonomy and freedom of a contract, a freedom of contract of a consumer that does not care about the environment. 
and where, whether his autonomy should be restricted to protect future generations and our planet. This, is, this question is, for instance, relevant within the context of remedies in case of lack of conformity of a consumer project, product. Sorry. Uh, currently, a consumer is free to choose between repair and replacement, but from a sustainability perspective, repair is, of course, the better option. Should the consumer right to replacement therefore be restrict, restricted? Currently, there is also a legislative proposal on this topic, and they want to restrict the right to um, replacement and to encourage repairment. And I think, for example, that making the default will already be a good uh, starting point. So all in all, these, these three questions uh, illustrate that consumer law is not only about protecting consumers anymore, but at least to some extent also protecting our future. And in that sense, long-termism is starting to become an important topic in consumer law. Wow. <laughs> Great, thanks, thanks for that, Tom. Uh, you have given it a lot of thought. Uh, I can, uh, I can imagine. Some thanks for that. Yeah. They say the fossil fuel era has to end and end very soon. That conclusion, indeed, all the conclusions in this report have been approved by all the governments of the world. So the big question now is: Will they enable the radical action today's report demands? Labour plans to legislate the climate target it took to the election, a 43% cut in emissions by 2030. The governments should do what they say they're going to do about climate change. They should, they should not keep saying that they're going to do something and then do nothing at all. So they should abide by their own rules, their own guidance, their own words, their own policies. But they're not doing that at the moment. To ensure ecological sustainability, it is necessary to fundamentally change current production processes and consumption patterns. That can be done by new restrictions imposed on producers and consumers, or by increasing the price gap between more sustainable and less sustainable alternatives through taxes and levies. But how do we balance the long-term effect with the short-term effect? Our guest today to um, well to introduce this uh, theme and also this well uh, duality in our brain is Martijn Snoepies, chair of the Netherlands Authority for Consumers and Markets. Martijn, great to have you on the podcast. Uh, we're talking about the complexity between the measures that you can take now and the long-term effects, but also the short-term effects on well our Dutch citizens. What can you tell about this complexity that you're probably also wrestling with? Yeah, we in practice, we need to often make trade-offs. Trade-offs between, on the one hand, low prices now, and on the other hand, preventing ecological harm in the future. So, for example, the food prices can be low now, uh, but we know that there is a huge ecological impact on, our on future generations. So how do we balance the two? And that's why I'm very interested also to hear some guiding principles from the scholars in this podcast on how to make this trade-off, mm. because this is daily business for us. Okay, and, and what is then the role of the, uh, of the Dutch Authority for Consumers and Markets in, well, in this question of how do we um, uh, help producers to produce more sustainable, but also how do we help consumers to make more sustainable choices? Yeah, we are an independent government agency, and that is that means that we are bound by the laws that are being made by parliament in the Netherlands or in Europe. Uh, on the other hand, the norms and the laws are pretty open, so they leave a lot of room for discretion because it is very difficult to micromanage in a law what consumers and companies should do. And we fill in that open gap. We have the discretionary power to make policies and interpret these open norms. And in the interpretation of these open norms, we'll have to take into account the short-term effects versus the long-term effect. The short-term effect on consumers versus the long-term effect on future generations. And finding that right balance is an incredibly difficult task mm. because the future generations do not have a true voice in the, in the process. They are very young or not born yet, while the people who are faced with the negative consequences do have a very strong voice. And, and as an independent regulator, we have to find the right balance between the two. And there comes the second problem is that people now also not ha only have, they don't have a right to low prices, but they have a right not to live in poverty. 
They have a right to housing. They have a right to get affordable energy. They need to live their lives. But what if those low prices, what if the energy that they're consuming now is causing harm to future generations? And that's where mm. we need to strike the right balance. And do you have an example of, of one of the laws that has been made, which leaves you uh, as the ACM room to, uh, to interpret, uh, to make policies based on that law where you experience this, well, duality between the short term and the long term? Yeah, one, one, of the, uh, the, one of the many laws where we have to make this trade-off is, for example, the prohibition on companies to enter into agreements that change the competition among them. Mm -hmm. So they cannot agree on prices, they cannot agree on production processes, because the basic idea is if they're in competition, then the prices are the lowest possible and the production method is the most efficient. So competition works good. The problem is there's also a market failure because competition does not take into, a, into account the negative effects on other generations. So normally the legislator, the parliament is in charge to deal with those what are called negative externalities. But parliament is also stuck uh, in this dilemma between short-term low prices and long-term negative effects. And also in Parliament, the people who vote now you know, are more worried about the short-term effects than about the long-term effects of future generations. Mm. It's just, um, you know, that's yeah. how people work. So governments have a difficulty getting the right laws. So what do companies do? Companies say, well, we'll take the initiative and we'll agree to change our production processes which will lead to higher prices because, you know, in a more circular economy, probably raw materials are going to be more expensive, particularly on the short term. But that is a direct violation of the competition laws that aim to protect that type of competition between companies. Mm -hmm. So there is a true example of how, on the one hand, we need to protect competition on the short term, but on the other hand, also protect the environment on the long term by allowing companies to coordinate and agree on their production processes. Yeah. So if they have, if they coordinate together, they have a cooperation to say, well, let's not use this kind of material anymore and let's choose another material together. Then it's, it sounds like a cartel and that is prohibi prohibited. Even if the, if the goal is very, uh, very good, if, if the goal is very good and sustainable. Yes, for short term, it can lead to higher prices, but for long term, uh, the result may be uh, a, a, a huge benefit to society. Yeah. So, in short, what would be the question that you want to ask to our scholars today? The short, in short, is my question to the scholars, give us guiding principles to make the trade-off between on the one hand, short-term negative effects on, for example, prices, consumer choice, quality of products, and on the other hand, the long-term effects on the ecology uh, and our society. Well, that's a great question. Thanks, uh, Martijn, for that. We'll uh, talk to you at the end of the podcast to uh, hear from you uh, what new insights you have um, had during this podcast. Thanks for now. In this episode of Long-Termism, three scientists, scholars if you wish, will give their view on this question. Anna Posash, she's a postdoctoral researcher on circular economy at Utrecht University. Michelle Ball is assistant professor in interdisciplinary social sciences at Utrecht University. And Joel Anderson is professor of moral psychology and social philosophy at Utrecht University. Well, um, if you listen to the other podcast, you know that in this part of the show, we have 10 minutes for each academic to talk about the issue at hand. And the other two will ask questions from their curiosity uh, to learn from their colleague in a totally different field of expertise. So, Anna, you've been listening to the question of Martijn, the short term versus the long term. He needs something to hold on to. What guiding principles do you have for him? Yeah, I'm afraid I will have to take a step back from this question. Please uh, do. I was invited here because I did my PhD on consumption. I tried to understand what influences consumption from the perspectives of many different disciplines. 
And uh, while doing that, I realized that there is a strong narrative that um, places responsibility for consumption on consumers, right? We talk about consumption, we immediately think about consumers. So we see consumers as the main cause for overconsumption in our society. And But what I found when you read from disciplines that look more at structural aspects and have studied why has consumption increased so much in the past century is that this has happened because it's intrinsically related to our economic, economic system. Uh, an economic system that uh, is uh, geared towards economic growth requires increasing levels of production and consumption. And the way this is done uh, is extremely exploitative of ecosystems and of people all over the world. So the unsustainability is not only in terms of environmental, but also in terms of social aspects. Um, and it's not at the surface of the system. I believe it's not something that we can address simply with some taxes here and there. Uh, we have to look at it more from the that it is at the core of the system that depends on consumption, depends on creating consumers for the system to continue. So I would say that what we need at the core is a change of paradigm, a paradigm that does not place, you know, profits, that we, we have to stop believing that profits above all and competition above all will deliver for everyone, you know, and for the planet, because mm. what we are facing is exactly the opposite. So instead of that, we need a paradigm that places care, care for people and care for ecosystems at the core of our societies and economic system. And this means that we have to question how would everything change if we have that new paradigm in place. And for that, I can give some uh, insights that we know that beyond basic material levels, um, what is most essential to human beings is immaterial. It is things like um, feeling loved, feeling that you belong, feeling um, some sense of excitement, feeling some admiration, respect, feeling useful, feeling uh, that you can care for others. And these are things that do not require that much materials and resources. So this, this is a good thing to know. But it means that how, what would it mean to organize our societies, our companies, our world in a way that uh, to meet these essential aspects. Um, this, uh, I think this is the main question we have to face. Mm. And another aspect I would just like to mention is that um, when we talk about the effects of consumption, the effects of uh, environmental impacts on the planet, this, there is a strong inequality into who contributes the most for climate change and who is most vul vulnerable to climate change. This in terms of, you know, between countries and within countries. We know, for example, that uh, in 2018, 1% uh, of the people in the world caused half of global aviation emissions. So when we talk about, you know, sacrifices to consumers, uh, to people, we have to look at what are the actually the biggest impacts? Who are the biggest polluters? This is a huge, this is a minority, really a minority of the population. So we are not sacrificing, you know, everything. We have yeah. to say certain, certain things should be uh, simply not done because yeah. they are incredibly polluting and in unequal, unequal. And so if I I'll go back to the question Martijn asked, uh, I, I'm, you're telling us, well, the system that we have, the capitalist, capitalistic system that we have has, has reached the ends of its usefulness. We need something else or we need a big change um, uh, to change that. And you're also saying, well, um, here in the rich West, and especially in, in the Netherlands, where we are one of the richest con uh, countries in the in the West, we should have a broader view on what are the the things we have to let go, maybe, and uh, the prices that maybe will rise, but will be normal. Um, 
the first thing that comes to mind for me is that, yeah, uh, probably a lot of people will agree with you, but the, the, the regular voter in the Netherlands will use their vote to make sure that still prices on the short term will stay a bit lower for us because their view is we're here in the Netherlands. This is our worldview. We're not looking abroad above our own boundaries to see what happens in the, in the rest of the world. So how can you help Martijn battle that conflict of interest? Yes, I think one aspect is that we have to be aware that these long-term impacts, you know, they are not that long-term anymore. Climate change is happening right now. We are feeling consequences right now. Uh, the Netherlands is at the incredible risk also of climate change in the mid to long term future. So I think one thing is make people aware that, and I think that's partly a lot of the media could have, could play a much bigger role, that we are not talking about, oh, let's sacrifice a little bit our lifestyle now for the sake of having a better environment in the future for our children. It's not about that is that what we are doing now by not doing anything or almost anything at all in terms of changing fundamentally the system is that we are sacrificing right now our near-term, long-term future of the planet for everyone. Yeah. That this is what we are doing by not acting enough. Yeah. And I think if people realize that, people will want to be part of the solution, of course. Uh, taking into account, I think, much more that we have to punish much more or uh, be much stricter with those that are ha having the greatest impacts on the planet. And these are usually not the middle, low class. These are the highest class, the, the richest and the biggest companies. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Well, um, Joel Anderson and Michelle Ball are, uh, have been listening uh, to you. Uh, Joel, first to you, what, what triggers your curiosity? Which question do you have for Anna? No, I think this was really fascinating. And uh, the thing I'm most interested in is the emphasis you placed on long-term change towards more of a focus on demand for non-material goods, for for relationships, uh, ways of, modes of well-being, and so on. And the question is, um, how do you see that developing as a kind of form of consumer demand? Is that part of what you're promoting, right? That Because we all need, in order to earn a living, we need other people to have a consumer demand for what we're offering. That's, that's how, it's not just a capitalist economy, that's any time we're exchanging goods and services. I need to have something I can offer that you find valuable. And I think what's interesting in the, in the emphasis you're placing on these the shifts toward uh, immaterial goods, which may be a very important part of the transition we need to make, is it raises this question of, okay, does this mean inspiring a market for friendships? for belonging or how does that, how does, how, how are we going to earn money when that's good, when that's the focus of consumer demand? Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I would say not, and <laughs> that, that would be totally not the direction I would go to, uh, because I think another of the, the main conclusions from my research I've, I've faced is that we are, the narrative is very strong also on seeing people mainly as consumers and this for me is also part of the problem that's why we see the solutions have to pass you know consumption is caused by consumers and we can only act as consumers and i think this is a uh, part of the problem because we are and then i would not say it's immaterial goods <laughs> we are friends neighbors uh, colleagues parents you know citizens volunteers activists we we have all these dimensions and this is what also uh, deeply uh, gives meaning to our lives. So I would not say that we need to create a market for friendships. I would not put a solution in the market. Actually, I would think we have to take a lot of things out of the market. I think of the things that are essential for people's life, like the right to housing, affordable housing, the right to education. We, ha we have to think also maybe right to food uh, so, and to healthy food. 
and to sustainable food. So I think what should be right, should be standard, should be, we have to organize it in a way that, that you know, the basic well-being is met. And then I think, you know, for example, someone who is retired has a lot of free time and uh, can give so much to its community. And I would not put it in market terms, right? It's about um, more social aspects that you are probably much more of an expert than, <laughs> than I am, right? Of uh, belonging, seeing what is needed, feeling that, that you are being useful for things that are needed in the community. So less consumption rather than different consumption. For sure. Yeah. All right. Thanks for that. Uh, for that great question, Joel. Uh, uh, Michelle, Michelle. Yeah. What's your question to Anna? Uh, well, I've also been listening with great interest. I think it's uh, really interesting. This rad quite radical change that you're suggesting. Throw away the entire system we have right now and make an entirely new one um, with meaningful connections and, and all those things. Um, my question is um, different from, from Joel's, I guess. Um, how does power play a role in this? Because I think the people in power will have a lot to lose in this new system. Uh, and I think in order to create that new system, they need to be on board. So how does power play a role in well, yeah. what you're suggesting? Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, definitely. And I think such as... Uh, as you say, that the power will be resistant to such a deep change. I think it's also important to realize and to research much more the ways that incumbent powers have drove us to this point and are resisting any, uh, any consequential and deep changes to the system because this affects, uh, you know, profits and so on. Um, and I think that is a bit, uh, a big part of the problem and uh, a key aspect of it, right? This uh, incredible demand, uh, incredible forces for lobbying to remain the system as it is, uh, based on fossil fuels, on high energy, on high, you know, economic growth is needed for all that, supposedly. Um, and I think we have to learn from, from power and organize as well, <laughs> organize a lot of counter lobby, of counter power and push for uh, yeah, a healthy future, stable climate. Well, thanks, Anna, for that insight. Uh, totally different in system, different world than that what we're living in now. So uh, I can imagine uh, people are very curious how that world will look like, perhaps in the future. It's time for our next caller. Michelle Ball. Well, let's turn back to the question Martijn Snoep asked. Uh, because he needs some, uh, some guidelines, something to hold on to in this uh, the difficult position that he is in between the, the short term and the long term from the, uh, the authority that he's working for. So what's your take on that? Yeah, um, thank you for that question, Martijn. And um, I think I'm going to try and end with an answer to that. But uh, first, I also need to take a bit of a step back. Uh, you were saying that um, the people who vote now, they don't care. And I think from my field, social sciences, this is an important um, aspect or factor that we are really focusing on. So how can we get people to care? Because if people care, they vote for differently and uh, well, that might uh, change the system entirely. I don't, well, I don't know. But um, so how do we uh, get people to care? I think that's a main question that I can give some insights on. And um, from my field, um, maybe if you look at the trade-off more broadly, um, we look at it as a social dilemma. Climate change can be seen as a social dilemma. I think Joel will also be familiar with that probably. Um, so a social dilemma is a dilemma in which the um, short-term individual benefits conflict with long-term uh, societal benefits, right? So uh, it's attractive for people uh, right now to make uh, more egoistic choices uh, than to look at the long-term. And um, But if everyone makes these individualistic, egoistic choices, well, that's exactly the problem you were getting at. Then in the long-term, we have not a livable planet anymore. Um, so we know from a lot of research within the social sciences um, that actually a lot of people um, do want to cooperate, do want to go for these more long-term options in such a social dilemma, such as climate change then. Um, so a lot of people are pro-social. I think the majority of people at least is pro-social, different numbers. Um, 
at least, if not provoked to act differently. I think that's important. Um, so in these social dilemmas, pro-sociality is important, but I think for climate change, this needs to be extended even further because a lot of times pro-sociality is kind of limited or narrowly focused on people around us in the here and now. Um, and for climate change, or for people to care about climate change and to take action against it, I think we need to broaden this scope further. Um, and that's where environmental justice comes in. And this is also a field that I'm very interested in. And within environmental justice, uh, the scope of justice is extended in, in three directions. Um, uh, globally, uh, ecologically and intergenerationally. So first, the scope of justice can be extended globally, so people care not only about what's happening right around them in their social circles, but for people all around the, around the world, right? And we know from research that if you try and make salient global citizenship, uh, so uh, if you have people think of themselves as, as being uh, part of, 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 of the world, a world citizen instead of a Dutch person, that kind of instills this more global... Um, uh, environmental justice idea, right? And and based on that, they will be willing to act at least a bit more sustainably. Um, we also know this ecological environmental justice perception, uh, caring about nature and non-human species uh, has a larger effect, but we don't know exactly how to make that salient for people. And then finally, this intergenerational, okay, makes sense, uh, caring about future generations, that's also alluded to before a lot of times, um, also has a strong effect on, or an effect, um, making people more willing to pay, more willing to take action, more willing to behave more sustainably. Um, I think this is an important one. We need to instill these types of values, these more self-transcending values in people. Uh, I think that's one, direction in how we can get people to care. So we need to tell them more why they should care about the environment. Um, not only because the planet is going to, but also because of these more values. And I think the other thing, and maybe I'm getting back a bit to what you were, say, uh, you were saying, Anna, um, we know from all these alarming reports, right, that the climate is changing. We're in a quite hot studio here also maybe partially because of climate change um so so let's assume that people are aware that the climate is changing at least most people are um what we are also trying to study and what's been studied in social sciences as well is um can that also be too much so if we keep telling people the climate is changing we are in dire in a dire position that might also threaten people to some mm. degree and one of the responses that they may have is that they then start to resist and that they then yeah. try and ignore what's happening, like the head in the sand. Is that also? Yeah, <laughs> like a freeze position. Yes, yes. So um, I think what's important besides these values is that we give people also like an action, an actionable option, right? So um, to get past this numbness of the threat that it poses. We need to uh, really find the balance. We need to make sure that they know it's urgent and that we need to act. But at the same time, they shouldn't go into this freeze position. Um, we don't need to, and therefore we need to give them options on what they can do and what has impact. And I think in that case, sense, we really need to inform people. All more. right, all right. Thanks for that, Michelle. Anna, what has triggered your curiosity yeah, thanks a lot. It was super interesting. I really liked uh, the this that you mentioned that the majority of people are pro-social, and uh, this is something that we are rarely aware of, and uh, it's uh, a lot against the common narrative that we are just individuals. So I would like to ask you: To which extent do you think that you know it's such a in the past, I guess, decades, such a strong narrative that people are individuals, they are selfish, they just care about themselves? And what has contributed to that? And how could we, you know, change this pop culture narratives and all over in a way that makes us realize that we are majority pro-social? That's an interesting question. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think this is a difficult one because I think in in essence or, or, or by default, people will be pro-social. But if they are triggered, for instance, by others who do not act pro-socially they will also kind of 
punish that, right? And and draw back into, well, retaliate against it. And that makes people more selfish. Um, so it's difficult to instill this pro-sociality on the long run if we see other people not acting pro-socially. So for that, I think we need to change the narrative and maybe we need this <laughs> system overthrown. Um, but maybe more culturally as well, that, that, um, that, yeah, that we maybe need to just act more pro-socially or, or, or more put more emphasis on the people who are pro-social and who might not be that that that, that uh, hurt that much in society because they are the majority. Yeah. Okay. Joe. Yeah, I actually wanted to pick up exactly <laughs> on that on that point because um, I think one of the issues is about the communication. Um, the social norming, as it's often described as being. So when you tell people most people are pro-social, they will tend to think, oh, I guess it's good to be, it's normal to be, to be pro-social. Um, but then you can get into situations in which people start thinking, yeah, but it's normal to go on a, a, vocation, a vacation to a remote location and burn lots of fossil fuels or to have high levels of um, unnecessary consumption and so on. And that, that raises the question then of to what extent, given the urgency of our situation, do we as a society need to start, I don't know, being spin doctors for the messaging about these social norms, right? And there's, you know, what's the line about being honest as a scientist, right? This is a research ethics question in part. Do we report data that reveal that people are in fact less pro-social than recent studies have reported? If there's a, if there's a study that reveals that, or do we need to start thinking, oh, well, this is going to then have an effect on people's behavior? What, how do you see your responsibility as a, as a researcher in that regard? Wow. wow. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A double wow, was a it? A double wow. Yeah. This is a, a big question, I guess. And it's a question that I might be able to pose back to you as well. Fair but enough, uh, before, before getting there, it's a question that I, that I have been struggling with, actually. Because I, I do feel that we have a social responsibility to also contribute uh, with our science to the world in a good way. Um, and I luckily have no data showing that people are in fact not pro-social. So that helps a little bit, maybe. Um, uh, so your question, what is, what is my social responsibility? At this, right now, I feel my responsibility is to, to study things that can contribute to the world and help the world. Uh, to make it more sustainable, at least that's what I think. And that's already a position, right? Um, and I actually was at a conference yesterday about sustainability. Um, and there, they, the, the scientists there really um, made a call to action that scientists are important um, change, agents of change that need to kind of step up and, and become activists and, 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 and tell people, like we have the IPCC showing, sorry, we have the IPCC showing that, uh, that we are in a dire phase and we need to act now and, and we need to be more vocal about that. Um, okay, but... I don't know yet. I mean, but there, there is a worry here that as researchers, as scholars, as scientists, we, we let our activism, our commitment to social change, get the upper hand over our commitment to the truth, to reporting the results of studies, even when this may be, involve a setback to some of these, some of these goals that we have. I think that's, that's a, that's, mm. that's a tricky line to, to consider even crossing. I see someone behind you not agreeing. And I, I, <laughs> I also do not agree entirely because I don't think, um, I would be in favor of keeping things from the public that I have found, but in specifying what I want to research, I think I should take into account what has value for the world or what can have merit for the world. Mm. And, and I'm not saying that if it turns out that I find something that I'm not expecting and that's not helpful that I shouldn't report it. I think that's an important difference there, I guess. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about Robert Cialdini who <laughs> wrote a book and if you re read his book about influence, then he's saying, well, I want to help the people in the world not to get fooled by marketeers. And if you see who buys his books and, and where he makes his money, it's with marketeers. So. I think this is the dilemma. Exactly. But I can also imagine that, that your 
the actions that you take with your research and how do you bring it to the public can make a huge difference in, in if you're helping uh, sustainability or not. All right, thanks, Michelle. It's time for our last contribution. Joel Anderson, what's your take on the... Well, I've got I've, so much now that's uh, that's already <laughs> in play here. It's it's hard to know how to exactly focus in. But I, I, I like the way in which Martijn focused the question on an issue of of balancing these these competing considerations. Um, I do want to I want to emphasize we're in a situation of of urgency of crisis. There are tipping points with regard to the climate and but also with regard to other other system, systemic changes where it really does matter that you act soon and and make a priority to act now on behalf of the long term. But I think sometimes in the discourse, especially in a number of views that go under the title of long-termism, this can get to be um, a bit of an extreme view in which the only thing that has priority is, is the long term. And there are many people suffering now. There are people who face, who face poverty now. There are things that we can do, some of which may actually have the implication of, um, uh, of setting back the interests of uh, existing or not yet, of not yet existing future uh, generations who may never come into existence. So I think it really is important to ask these questions about about balance. And I mean, in the background is a question of just how much we can trust ourselves going forward, right? Um, I think one of the things that you hear discussed regularly are various forms of self-binding, self-commitment. I mean, the, the classic metaphor for this is Ulysses and the sirens, right? He knows he's going to be lured away from his path um, by the siren call of, the, of these beautiful sirens. And so he has his crew bind him to the mast. And I think in many contexts, we are like that. When it comes to uh, certain situations, we have difficulty finding the ways of cooperating that we need to. We, we, we cut corners or we freeload off of others. We externalize, um, we externalize the cost to others or to future generations. And so I think it is important that we explore many of these sort of mechanisms that we can use. I mean, the Paris Accords are, are an example of that, where we bind ourselves to a certain path, knowing that we're going to be subject to temptations in the future. So I think one design principle that Martin was asking for is we need to spend a lot of attention on what sorts of binding mechanisms, strategies for keeping ourselves on path in situations in which we know we're going to be subject to temptation. But there are two things there I want to emphasize. One is um, a lot of the research, and I think developing more fine-grained principles, is going to need to be focused on what are the danger zones in terms of temptations that are really, really powerful? What are some of the temptations that are going to be hard for people to, uh, to not give into? But also thinking about what are the contexts in which we as human beings, and this is where my moral psychology comes in, are particularly vulnerable to being tempted, have difficulties uh, staying on track. And there's you know, some interesting work being done in psychology to identify some of these principles. So that's, that's one thing that I think is, is an important area of focus. But the other thing I do want to emphasize is the danger of having a kind of arrogant attitude that we know um, what needs to be done. We can plan out the path for how we will save these future generations. And, you know, future generations may have a different perspective on some of these things. Uh, we may think we know what their priorities are going to be, but if we, uh, if we design in a way that's going to narrow the options for them, we're treating them somewhat paternalistically, like, like, like children. Now, obviously, they're not yet at the table. They don't exist yet. We can't have this conversation with them. But we need to be thinking about principles that keep a certain openness to these, to these self-binding mechanisms that we take advantage of. So there needs to be room for reversibility, room for possibilities in which people, um, we can anticipate that people are going to feel that they want to have a voice and develop a voice later. And this is all very abstract, but I think this, this 
attitude of we're in an urgent situation now, there's a tipping point around the corner, and therefore we know exactly what the path is, that that's aligned with a number of very extremist views across the political spectrum that I think we ought to be careful of. Because if there's one thing we should be investing in, it's democratic, truth-based, legitimate institutions for governing these difficult decisions we'll face in the future. One of the things that comes to mind is that a lot of things that we have regulated and probably also within uh, Martijn's uh, authority is that the basis for all these regulations is that we as human beings take rational decisions in buying things, choosing between one or the other, uh, choosing for the long term, how how good a product is, how how much we need a product. But we know it yeah, doesn't yeah, work we, that way. We shouldn't be naive about that. I'm not, I mean, I certainly don't think we should be naive about that. But there's, there's a difference between um, having a clear sense of the, the limits of human willpower and self-control and a willingness across the board to shackle ourselves in, in, in future situations in which we may have new insights that we don't yet anticipate now. Hmm. But could you ingrain these, the, maybe the, the, the human flaws, hmm. uh, the way we get lured into, well, listening to the sirens. Uh, so these, these ropes that we need to, uh, to, uh, uh, well, to make sure that we, uh, we won't, uh, go into the cliffs. Um, in our con- consumer behavior, could you ingrain these things into a system? And one of the things that I'm thinking about it, we used to have in the Netherlands, we used to have be- very small example. We used to have beer bottles and they were all the same. The only difference that there was, was the, was the label on it. So for the system of uh, reusing the bottles, it was very easy. Now we have all these different kinds of bottles because it's better for marketing. But it's not better for the system. I mean, it's a, it's a good example of a case where the amount of diversity um, may not be all that important to people, right? It could be that this is a context in which um, marketeers are key, are, are, are really focused in on how they can find a way of differentiating their product. And the added benefit to consumers is relatively small. And so we can sort of have... You, you might adopt as a, uh, an organization of manufacturers of beer, of beer brewers, you might say, look, before we start getting into this, this spiral of competition, you know, trying to differentiate ourselves more and more, let's just agree on the standardization of, uh, of bottles. I mean, this, happened, this, is, this is actually what regulation is ultimately all about, right? Settling on rules of the game that allow us to avoid collective action problems where people are trying to get a particular advantage by doing their thing a little bit differently. And so I think the question, the, the, part of the question you're asking in terms of what can we do to get ourselves in a better position to do that in the future is start thinking about the smaller contexts. This may be one of them, but maybe even in our, in, in our more informal interactions with un, one another, where we can remind ourselves of our pro-social behavior in the sense of, you know, these are contexts in which we bind ourselves and everybody benefits. I think seeing more illustrations of that and being more aware of that builds a sense of solidarity and a willingness to say, okay, I could maybe get ahead myself here on this, but I realize that there's a larger good that can be realized yeah. by, co- by cooperating. All right. Michelle, yes. what's the question that you have for Joel? Many, but I'll try <laughs> to narrow it down to yeah. two. <laughs> yeah, you can um, one. Yeah, so you were saying uh, we should take into account that future generations might think differently and don't want to go down the path that we are now kind of going in. Um, And maybe uh, uh, combining that with what Anna was suggesting to have an entirely new system that we might not even be able to imagine right now. My question is, how can we take into account these future generations then if we, well, cannot imagine right now how they might think? 
Well, so there's, there's two parts to this. I mean, that's a great question. Um, one part of it is how do we structure our thinking about the unavoidable choices that we need to make? And I think there's an earlier podcast in this series that referred to thinking in terms of scenarios. That's something they've been doing at the Wetenschappelijke Raad voor Regeringsbeleid, the VRR. Um, thinking about scenarios uh, and um, playing out kind of like different different models as a way. I think there's an interesting, this is a little bit of a side note, but I think there's an interesting potential for for artificial intelligence to help us in thinking out, uh, thinking through ever more detailed, complex scenarios that our own prefrontal cortex is not capable of uh, of imagining. So I think we can think more about uh, about these longer about these strategies for playing out playing out scenarios and really putting more attention to that. So becoming more futurologists than we already are. But I also think um, we need to be we need to have a sense of modesty, right? I think it's you need to have a sort of design for reversibility, design for fallibilism, building into the choices you make enough of a binding hold that you are going to be confident you'll be able to resist foreseeable temptations but not locking yourself so so much in that you know a future generation that is envisioning a whole nother way of organizing the economy or law or other institutions um has the has the freedom to to do that because they've somehow been been bound by by structures that we've set up now right anna the final question Thank you so much. Um, a lot to think about. Um, I would start with uh, that maybe I disagree with this point that this fear that of this arrogant attitude that more in, I, I would agree with fear of arrogant attitudes in general, but I would not say that uh, we are at that risk now in the sense that, um, you know, the IPCC warnings come from 1990, the, the first ones. Yeah, and earlier. And, okay. and yeah. right now, the emissions are still increasing. So I would say if there is a danger to be shackled to something, I think it's to this past, you know, path dependency of the system that is extremely shackled to high fossil fuel use and economic growth related to that, which is reliant, you know, on exploitation. Mm -hmm. I already mentioned that. But then my point would be more, so I'm wondering, you know a lot about humans, right? About people. And you were, you were saying, we, we are like this, we are like that. But is, is this a question of human nature or is it not also more a question of the people who are in power over this system that have designed it in a way? Or for example, who benefits, for example, the, the, the question of temptations? Yeah. To which extent is a mass marketing not responsible for all the temptations that you we see you know on our daily lives advertising on our phones outdoors everywhere yeah. um okay so uh, the we is a very diverse uh one i think that's important to, to emphasize and different people in different parts of the globe and at different points in time have have a different take on these things um but i do i do worry about this this sense that the forces that if we it, so the way you put it it's there are these these forces that are causing people to want certain things i think there's a there's there's a couple of dangers there one of them is we're we're treating other human beings and this is a matter of respect for the autonomy of other human beings we're treating them as victims and judgmental dopes they're just hoodwinked by these various um, marketing forces these are people like you and me and i'm i'm the first one to uh, admit that i'm subject to various kinds of uh, influences marketing pressures uh, and so on uh, saying the right thing on a podcast so that i can face my colleagues when i get back to the office all those kinds of pressures i mean i'm subject to as well but i think if we uh, we need to we need to keep in mind that um that there is a basic thresh, basic respect that is owed to people for their for their autonomy, and that as with the case of not not starting to tell, not not starting to engage in propaganda about, but 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 stick to the truth, 
right, with regard to research results, and we're discussing earlier with Michelle, we also, I think, need to be really committed to um, a, enough trust in the democratic process that we can give people a voice in it. If we start thinking, there, you know, we can't rely on the existing institutions at all anymore, and we have to tear everything down, then we're going to be facing a situation in which we are in the state of nature trying to set all these institutions up uh, again. So that's, that's a little bit apocalyptic there, but I just, <laughs> so this, this, this sense of um, focusing on legitimate governance as something we need to work to develop. I'm not saying it's there now, but I'm saying we need to work to developing it because if we don't have that, then we're just doing eco-fascism or something. You know, somebody has the right way to impose things and it's not carried by and supported by people. And then, and then I think we're, we're in a very dangerous space. Okay, this is the moment where we're asking a question will turn into a discussion, which we're not going to do uh, at this moment, because there's also a great link back again to Martijn, who is working for one of these institutions. And I'm very curious about his take on all this great information, knowledge, wisdom, and uh, a bit of discussion. So, next up. Well, Martijn Snoep, you have your work cut out for you. You've been listening to these uh, three uh, academics, uh, their th three colleagues of, the U of Utrecht University. And my simple question to you is, what's your main new insight? What has broadened your mind? Well, I think I have a couple of great insights. Uh, at least, I hope they're great. Um, the first start with the bad news, uh, and the bad news is there's obviously no simple solution to the dilemma. The good news at the same time is that we didn't miss it either. So that's, uh, I'm happy and relieved to, um, to conclude that. But what I liked very much about the discussion and about Anna's contribution to the discussion is that it is good to take step back from time to time and ask yourself the fundamental questions about the way our societies are organized. But on the other hand, and this came also back at the last part of the discussion, uh, we cannot wait for an evolutionary change where we slowly develop a new society and a new way of thinking without a clear precedent to go to with very few examples in the past. And at the same time, we also don't want a violent revolution to change things because these violent revolutions seldom lead to any good. So we, we need to do this via a democratic process. And that brings me to Michelle's point, which I liked, was that we humans are not only egoistically facing on the short term, but we're also pro-social and look at the long-term effects. So we are both, we have two faces. And, and what I like about the idea is that, and that is something I think we, is actionable, is what we can do, is emphasize and focus more on the pro-social side of our existence, of our human beings, and not automatically accept that we are egoists and not thinking about the future. So a strong appeal to our social, pro-social self, I think is, is appropriate. And then finally, what I liked about Joel's contribution to, this, to the discussion is the idea of binding ourselves to the mast, like Ulysses, and to fight the lure of the sirens and how we do that. And we partially are doing that, for example, in treaties like the Paris agreement. Um, but maybe we can do this more fundamentally. Uh, what I also liked about the idea, and it's also a warning sign for all of us that we should try to avoid predicting the future because we're awfully bad at that. Uh, you know, there is, I think there are hardly any examples of, good future prediction. 
So we need to keep things open, sufficiently open. So we need to bind ourselves to the mast on the one hand, but on the other hand, keep things sufficiently open to change over the course of time. And that made me think of the way fundamental rights have developed. You know, in the 18th century, a couple of philosophers and lawyers and others, politicians, thought hmm, maybe a good idea to put down fundamental freedoms in a, in a constitution and bind ourselves to the mast that we cannot change if we suddenly do not like the freedom of speech. Because, yes, sometimes it's not good for government to have freedom of speech. But we nevertheless, we put it in the constitution, make it extremely difficult to change, have an independent constitutional court to judge and to make decisions whether we fulfill the, the, these fundamental freedoms, whether we abide by the fundamental freedoms, and maybe we should give ecological rights, long-term rights, also a stronger position in our constitutions and have our constitutional courts test whether we act in line with our constitutional obligations towards future generations. And the nice thing about that, comes back to the earlier point, is that we can do that in relative open norms with relatively guiding principles. If you look at the 18th century interpretation of freedom of speech, you know, basically the law hasn't changed much, but the interpretation has changed dramatically over the years. And also what has changed is that it's technology independent. You know, when we thought about, when the, in the 18th century they thought about freedom of speech, they never thought about the internet. They, never, they only thought about press. And now we have freedom of speech across a wide variety of media. So this shows that you can create norms, put them, bind yourself to the mast in the constitution, and these norms and obligations can transcend into centuries into the future and evolve with, um, you know, kind of new, the new things that are necessary in society. And, and that may be a guiding, it's not, it's not a guiding principle, but it is a way, a procedure, how we can get to these guiding principles and make them work for societies now and in the future. Thanks to all our guests, Martijn Snoep of the Authority for Consumers and Markets, Tom Bouwman of Leiden University, Anna Possage, Michelle Bal and Joe Anderson, all working at Utrecht University. And thank you, of course, for listening to this Long-Termism podcast. There's more to come, so please subscribe via your favorite podcast platform. <laughs>